Support for this podcast comes from Google. Whether you're a teacher, a business owner, or just want to take the next step in your career, you can find free tools and training to grow those skills at google.com backslash grow. From the National Urban League, this is For the Movement, a podcast that discusses persistent policy, social, and civil rights issues affecting communities of color. I'm Clint Odom, Senior Vice President of Policy and Executive Director of the Washington Bureau. And I'm Tony Wiley, Director of Advocacy for the National Urban League. We're pleased to have with us today Evan Marwell, who is the founder and CEO of Education Superhighway, the leading nonprofit focused on upgrading internet access in every public school classroom in America. To date, Education Superhighway has connected 45 million students to broadband for digital learning and secured commitments from 50 governors to upgrade their schools for the 21st century. Over the last 25 years, Evan has launched many successful telecom, software, and finance companies. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School, and currently lends his expertise to several boards, including MyAgro, an NGO assisting smallholder farmers in Africa move out of poverty. So Evan, on behalf of the Urban League movement, we'd like to welcome you to For the Movement. How's it going out there uh, on the West Coast today? Well, it's it's great to be here today. Fortunately, we have uh, clear skies and, and no smoke coming from anywhere, which has been a bit of an unusual thing for the last you know three to six months. But uh, so we're really happy to be here today. Well, great, great. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in improving public education? My interest in public education comes really from two things. Number one, having grown up in a a family of educators. My father was a professor. My mother worked in the Madison, Wisconsin public school system. And I was uh, fortunate enough to go to some of the best public schools in the country growing up. And I have a really soft spot in my heart for public schools and and teachers and administrators and all they do. I I know just what a difficult job it is and the challenges that they're always facing. But the thing I'll say is that that public school education that I got and then all the education I've gotten since then has really been what's opened every door in my career for me. I really do honestly believe that for my own life and, and the lives of countless others, Education really can be the ticket to whatever it is you want to do, and and it can be the door opener for opportunity. And so that's why I'm interested in public education and and doing all I can to help make it better for this country. Evan, your organization, Education Superhighway, was founded back in 2012. Yeah. And you actually formed that organization with a very specific and ambitious mission. Tell us about how your organization was founded and what did it originally seek to address? Right. Well, back in 2012, I was looking for my next startup. As Clint said in the introduction, I've started a whole bunch of companies in my life, but I was looking really to turn and find a way to make a difference. And, And the only way I know how to make a difference is by being an entrepreneur and by solving problems and and making things happen. And I was thinking a lot about education and I was actually thinking about starting an ed tech company because I'd done work in technology for many years. Uh, As I said before, I had an interest in education. 
And then I had this funny thing happen to me, which was I went to talk to a few teachers about some ideas that I had for an ed tech company. And they all asked me the same question about 10 minutes in where they said, so are you a teacher? And I said, no, I'm, I'm a business guy, but I'm really interested in education. They're like, well, you know, I'm not sure I need you to tell me how to teach. <laughs> and so I said, huh, well, maybe I have to find a different way to support education in America. And really just by chance, I learned that one of the biggest things holding back the adoption of digital learning and technology in our classrooms was that our classrooms really had bad internet. There was an FCC survey done back right around the time when we were starting that said that 80% of classrooms didn't have sufficient internet to actually use technology in the classroom for teaching and learning. And so I stumbled upon this and I said, huh, well, I know actually a lot about internet and that's a very solvable problem. So I went back to some of those teachers and I said, well, do you have lousy internet? And they were like, yeah, our internet's bad. And I said, well, what if I could help fix that for you? And they said, well, then I would buy you a cup of coffee. <laughs> so, so I said, aha, here's the problem that I want to solve. And it turned out that around 2012, there was a tremendous amount of attention being paid to how can we use technology to level the playing field in our classrooms? How can we use it to, to really deliver on the promise that no matter of your zip code, no matter where you were born, no matter what your situation is, you can have access to the best education. And people were really looking towards technology to be part of that solution. But what they weren't thinking about was, if we wanna use technology, we really need to have good internet access. And so we founded, or I founded Education Superhighway in 2012 with that very specific mission in mind, to bring high-speed broadband to every public school classroom in America so that every teacher and every student could take advantage of technology to get equal access to a great education. I'm a former FCC staffer. Uh, you know, I worked for Jessica Rosenworcel and, and Bill Kennard and have uh, really considered the agency like a home. Uh, this is something that the agency has been struggling with and wrestling with for, for decades. It was really interesting to see uh, that Education Superhighway has been so successful in getting foundational support from the FCC, from, from Chan Zuckerberg, the Gates Foundation, telecom partners of ours like Charter and Comcast, and all of these governors to reach this goal. What is it about, you know, an entrepreneur's effort uh, that seems to be inspiring all this confidence that, that just wasn't present when it comes to the government's ability to fulfill the same goal? One of the things I like to say is that when you're the new kid on the block, you have no baggage, you have no expectations, and you have a lot of flexibility. So when I started Education Superhighway, everybody, I showed up and I said, we're going to bring high-speed broadband to every public school classroom in America. People sort of smiled at me, reflecting on exactly what you just described, which was, well, we've been trying to do that for years, and <laughs> we've been able to do it. But really... Because I was a new entity, because we didn't have a lot of the constraints that many of those organizations have, but most importantly, and, and particularly when it comes to thinking about government, government doesn't really have a lot of execution capacity, a lot of implementation capacity. 
government has the ability to set goals. Government has the ability to use the bully pulpit to sort of get people behind those goals. Government has the ability to create a policy environment that can make pursuit of those goals easier or harder. And government has the ability to provide money. But government doesn't really have the ability to go out and actually solve the problem. They need other actors to come in and do that. And many times they try to get the market to do it and they look for market-based solutions. But in many times across all kinds of issues, they look to other actors, whether it's in the social services sector, the nonprofit sector, whatever, to take some of those resources and actually go get the work done. And it turned out there was nobody really trying to go actually get the work done when it came to connecting schools on a nationwide basis. You certainly had organizations in different states, particularly state uh, telecom networks that were doing things. But for a vast majority of the school districts in America, once you got outside the top, oh, let's call it even the top thousand out of the 13 plus thousand school districts, they really didn't have either the technical or the procurement expertise in-house to know how to go and get this done and how to bring fiber to their schools and how to find the best deals on internet access. What we did is we came at this fresh, we came at it with execution capacity, and we came at it with a clean slate and how we thought about the roles that different people could play. And, and a lot of what we did was figure out what were the motivations that would bring different people to the party and would get them to want to be part of this mission. So with governors, it was every governor in America thinks that education is one of their most important responsibilities. And every governor in America struggles to find things they can actually get done in a reasonable amount of time to improve education. And so when we showed up and said, how about getting all your schools connected to the internet so that you can create access for all of your students, that was something that really appealed to them. When we went and talked to service providers, you know, service providers, they want to sell more broadband. And so as we were able to sort of construct a win-win scenario where we were like, look, we're going to help you grow your revenue, but you need to give schools way more bandwidth than you're actually giving them today. And we both know that doing that doesn't really cost you very much. So that was a win-win. So they could continue to grow their business, but at the same time, do a lot more for schools. And so on and so on. When it came to the FCC, you know, they had this E-rate program, billions of dollars a year, but it wasn't having the effect they had. So when we were able to help show them how the program could be more effective, they were willing to get on, on board. And so it really, like any big sort of systems change objective, it really, a big part of it is having a clear goal, a clear strategy to get there, but then figuring out how do you get the people that need to be part of the solution on board and engaged. In the most ambitious version of your plan, when do you see yourself hitting some of these really outsized goals that you've set for yourself? Are there any early test cases that prove the more national uh, success? By what date on the calendar do you think we can we could actually uh, get broadband uh, in the way that you've you proposed doing it? Our original mission we set in, in 2012 was to upgrade 99% of the schools in America by August 31st of 2020. Wait, that was two months ago. The reality is we hit that in August 31st of 2019. 
So on August 31st of 2019, 99% of the schools in America had a high-speed broadband connection. And a year later, 99.7% of all of our public school students had the internet that they needed in their classrooms in order to use technology for teaching and learning. So we hit our goal. When I started, I, as I said, I, I set a, a, an eight-year goal. We hit it in seven. We spent the last year trying to get to as many of the last 1% as we could. And we were actually scheduled to go out of business August 31st, the sunset the organization having achieved our mission. And then of course the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, we closed our schools. We sent home the 47 million public school kids and we sent them home to a situation where 10 to 15 million of them didn't have internet access at home and really couldn't participate in the remote learning programs that their schools were running. And so my phone in March started ringing. I started getting calls from DC saying like, what should we be doing about this? Started getting calls from governor's offices around the country, how do we connect these kids? And from superintendents around the country, you know, how, how do I buy internet for these kids? And so we decided to pivot the organization and on April 1st uh, to focusing on what used to be called the homework gap. And if you worked for Commissioner Rosenworcel, you know that was one of her favorite terms. And now is really the learning gap, right? Because if schools are closed, this is how you go to school. So over the last six months, we've done a tremendous amount of work on this. I think really good progress has been made in the sense that we've probably seen about 3 million of those 10 to 15 million kids get connected since April. And in any other moment, you would have said, holy smokes, that is crazy good progress. But unfortunately, 3 million out of 10 to 15 million isn't good enough. And so that's why we've continued, you know, we're continuing our work. We haven't gone out of business as planned. And we, we think that it, it is imperative for us as a nation to solve this problem, to, to connect every kid at home so that they can, there is no more homework gap and they can participate in remote learning as long as schools are closed. And frankly, beyond that, to connect every home in America, because one of the things the pandemic has truly revealed is that internet is probably just as important as electricity these days, right? If you don't have good internet, you can't get a good job. You can't go to school. You can't get healthcare. You can't access government services. And so anybody who's on the wrong side of the digital divide is at such a huge disadvantage in our society today that we've got to solve this problem writ large. The good news is there's some things that have been happening as a result of the pandemic that we can talk about later with our K-12 Bridge to Broadband program that I think actually gives us a real shot at getting this done. Well, you definitely made a perfect segue to the K-12 uh, Bridge to Broadband. And you talked about kind of how your company had to pivot based on our teachers and our students moving away from the classroom. And you also talked about some ancillary concerns outside of just educating our students, but the need for jobs and health care that now is pretty much all virtual. Can you tell us a little bit more about the K-12 Bridge to Broadband and also how is it helping and benefiting these school districts and these parents and the teachers to stay connected beyond education? It's a great question. Look, as I was just saying, if you don't have internet at home today, you're, you're at a huge disadvantage. And so 
We'd actually been asked by Commissioner Rosenworcel and, and many others for probably the last five years or so, hey, you're doing such a great job getting connectivity to schools. How about working on the homework gap? How about helping get connectivity to kids' homes so that they can, they can do the digital homework that they're being assigned and so that they can access all these other things that Tony was just talking about? And my answer was always the same. I said, nope, we're not gonna work on that. And we're not gonna work on it for two reasons. The first reason is that we need to stay focused on getting the schools done. And if we get diverted, then we're not gonna hit our goal of, of, of upgrading all the schools, which was why we were put in place to begin with. But the second reason was that I didn't believe we could actually accomplish the goal of closing the homework gap. And I didn't believe that for two reasons. The first was we didn't have any data. We didn't know which kids were and weren't connected. We don't know which families are and aren't connected around this country to internet access. And without the data, it's really hard to put together a plan to actually solve the problem and get them connected. So that was the first reason I, I would say no. The second reason was I didn't think we had the political will as a country to pay for it. Because the fact of the matter is while the unconnected, i.e. the people who don't have internet infrastructure available at their home, gets all the attention, right? That's the $100 billion program, infrastructure program that people wanna do to bring broadband to all of America. Well, the reality is, is that's probably no more than 25% of the digital divide. And that 75% or maybe even more is simply the fact that Families who have internet available to them can't afford it. And if we're not willing as a nation to step up and address that problem, just as we've addressed things like food stamps and people who need help with their electricity bills and things like that, if we're not willing to step up and, and address that problem, we can't solve the homework gap. We can't solve the digital divide. So that's been my view. And I think the pandemic has changed everything. The first thing the pandemic's done is it's changed the data problem. And this is where the K-12 Bridge to Broadband program comes into play. So as we were working on getting kids connected, we saw two places that were doing something really innovative in terms of figuring out how do I know which of my kids need internet at home and which of them don't have it. The first was Chicago, and the second was the state of North Dakota. And in both cases, they did something that if you had told me or Clint, if we had told you that they were going to do this when you were at the FCC, you would have had one of those great smiles that you have <laughs> and said, there's no way in heck that they're going to do that. And what Chicago did is they said, well, we're going to give the service providers who provide home broadband in the city of Chicago all the addresses of our students without their names. But we're just going to give them the addresses and we're going to ask them which of these addresses are you already providing service to? Who are your customers? And which of these addresses do you already have infrastructure at? I, and, and you could turn on service in 10 days if we, if we agreed to pay the bill. And they told me this and I said, never in a million years are service providers gonna tell you who their customers are. They've never done it, they're never gonna do it, and like, good luck with that. Well, a week later, I get a call back from the folks in Chicago. They say, yeah, they did it. They told us who their customers were. They told us which of our kids don't it, have Is it just the problem has just been who's asked the question? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? It very may well be. It very well may be. So 
I said, that's crazy. And then North Dakota, in rural North Dakota, did the same thing. And their service providers agreed. So I saw this and I said, okay, this is a complete game changer. We've got to take this national. And so I went to my friend, Michael Powell, at the Cable Association. And I uh, said to Michael- Another great friend of ours. <laughs> I'm sure. And I said to Michael, I said, hey, Michael, look what your members are doing in Chicago and in North Dakota. We need to take this national. What do you think? And Michael said to me, he said, well, you know, my members are looking for a way to do more in the pandemic. And let me propose it to them. And so we worked with Michael and his team, and then we worked with US Telecom and their team because they you know, have AT&T and Verizon and all those folks as members. And then we worked with the Rural Telco Association, and then we worked with ACA Connects, which is the smaller cable companies. And we developed a set of five principles. And the fundamental thing about the program, and we launched K-12 Bridge to Broadband. And what the service providers have now agreed to is, that they will do what Chicago did nationally. So any state, any school district can give service providers in their area a list of the addresses, and they will tell them who's got home broadband, who doesn't have it, and of the ones who don't have it, who do they have infrastructure that they could provide service to within 10 days. That is a complete game changer and never would have happened without the pandemic. We've taken that. We now have all but one of the largest internet service providers in the country signed on. We've got lots of our smaller companies around the country signed on. We've clearly got coverage in over 80% of America now for this program. And we're now starting to roll it out in partnership with states and with school districts around the country. If the past is any indication of what's going to happen in the future, we know that there's probably going to be another twist in the road you've successfully navigated two of those changes. One that immediately comes to mind is what happens if the predictions are correct, that one of the consequences of this pandemic is we could start to see people uh, getting evicted and people losing their homes to foreclosure, and we start to get a reshuffling of these school children. And let's be clear, 50 million public school children in the United States are predominantly children of color, uh, who we would expect to see hit pretty disproportionately by a housing crisis. Is there any sense of whether this housing crisis is really going to happen or whether this plan could flex to even take into account uh, displacement of, of students as a result of COVID uh, housing displacement? I am not of high enough pay grade to tell you whether there's going to be a housing crisis, right. other than the fact that given the homeless populations we already have, I think we already yep. have a housing crisis, right? Yep. Uh, and yep. As well as the, the lack of affordable housing and, and all the challenges that our communities face in, in, in terms of dealing with those issues. In terms of this plan, yes, I think there's two key things. So number one, this is not a one-time thing. So we have gotten companies committed to doing this on a regular basis, probably once a year, coinciding with the school year uh, every year. You can almost think about it like open enrollment period for your health insurance, right? We're going to run this program, figure out who needs to get signed up and, and go from there. But clearly, this doesn't address the issue of, of students who do not have a home, who do not right. have a, a permanent home. And so there are two things that I think can help address that. 
The first is, and what we're seeing in Chicago, for instance, is about 8% of their students fall into the bucket that you're just talking about, which is they don't have a permanent place to live. And so for those students, what they're doing is they're, they're getting them wireless hotspots. So LTE hotspots for, for internet connections. And that's not a perfect solution, but for, for that community uh, of, of folks, it, it, it's a pretty good solution. The second thing, and this is something we're working on with New York, is bringing high-speed broadband to homeless shelters and also to what they're calling learning labs, which are community facilities where as long as they're in a remote or hybrid learning model, students who otherwise do not have a place to be during the day can go for sort of supervised, not by teachers, but supervised remote learning. And we're working with New York City and with Cisco and with some others on bringing effectively Wi-Fi to those locations so that students still have access. There is no silver bullet solution to any of this. It's, it's all of the above. And so I do think that this plan can, can address those things. But there's one key thing that also has to change. And I believe the pandemic is creating the environment for it to change, which is we have to get the political will to pay for it. This is not something the service providers are going to do for free. And frankly, I, I don't think they should do it for free. I mean, they have costs and, and so on and so on. But this is something that I believe our government needs to step up and recognize that this is a essential service that everyone in America needs to have, in particular our school children, for us to deliver on our promise that everyone has access to a free and equitable education. I think that the the, the bill for that, for kids, is probably somewhere on the order of a billion dollars a year uh, to get all the kids connected. The good news is that the E-rate program has about a billion dollars a year of unused funding. And so I think one, one strategy is to allow that funding to be used to, to pay for home internet connections for these students. And then more broadly, I think it's probably about a $5 billion a year problem that we need to subsidize to make sure that every, everyone in America doesn't not have the internet because they can't afford it. There's another bill, which is about building out infrastructure to places that don't even have infrastructure. But as I said before, the vast majority of the problem in, in our research is, is people who can't afford it, but have it available, not people who don't have it available. So Evan, uh, we really enjoyed learning about all of the things you're working on to help improve education in this country and how you have used so many different platforms and so many different stakeholders to make that mission and make that a reality. If we want to continue to follow the work that you're doing, if we want to be connected to you and your organization, how might we do that? Go to our website at educationsuperhighway.org. As I said, we were supposed to go out of business in uh, August of this year. That's on hold for now. The urgency of this, the challenge of closing the digital divide is too important. So we're going to be sticking around for a little while longer. You can follow us on social media at uh, edsuperhighway. Those are probably the two best ways to, to keep in touch. Evan, I think we're going to recruit you to the uh, to the lobbying effort in the Congress as well. Uh, you know, I I heard, I heard you, I heard you clearly. There's a <laughs> government funding piece of this that is uh, has largely been ignored, but we we might be in an era in which people understand this just can't be done with private dollars. I, I 
I think you're right. I, I think a lot of Americans agree with you as well. As I said, the pandemic has changed a lot. And one of the things I think the pandemic has changed is the openness to the idea that this is something that we have to pay for. And yep. we are gearing up to be fully engaged. We have a vision for what we think needs to be done and how this problem can be solved just the way we solved. It's really using the same playbook that we use to solve the, the school broadband digital divide. And I think every governor in America will come to this. I think the service providers will come to this. Now all we got to do is get the people in DC to come to it. So no problem. Uh, Piece of cake. <laughs> Piece of cake. But, you know, I, I think we really have a, a real chance. We couldn't agree more. Thank so, you, Evan. This, this has been really a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and we are going to be cheering for your success and, uh, and maybe trying to contribute to it as well. Well, that would be awesome. And I look forward to having the opportunity to work with you all. And, and thanks for having me on the program. If you want to learn more about how the National Urban League is empowering communities and changing lives across the country, visit our website at nul.org. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at NUL Policy for updates. Be sure to rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And thank you for listening to For the Movement, presented by the National Urban League.